While still in the grip of self-isolation and lockdown brought on by COVID-19, we're all having to consider what next, which will be some sort of exit strategy to allow us to take the first steps towards normality. Among those considering the options are academics here at Warwick Business School. Professor of Behavioural Science Nick Pautawi and his colleague Andrew Oswald have come up with the idea that the first to be released from total self-isolation should be that band of the population between the ages of 20 and 30, young men and women comparatively more resilient than the rest of us who might then be in the vanguard of reinvigorating the economy for us all. And in this Core Insights podcast, one of a series focusing on the impact the pandemic's having on both individuals and society, and on how your organisations can survive it, Professor Pao Tawi will be telling us why. He joins me now via a telephone link that frankly could be better. Anyway... Let's leave that aside. Obviously, you're speaking as a professor of behavioural science, not as a doctor, but presumably with the conviction that economic meltdown could ultimately be as damaging as, if not more damaging than, the virus itself. Exactly. Um, So Andrew Oswald and I would like to say first that we are in support of the current government strategy, which is to try to save as many lives as possible but obviously, at the moment, um, severe damage is currently being done to the economy, uh, to future incomes, to unemployment, and to the general livelihood of millions and millions of people. And we know that at some point, lockdown will be no longer beneficial, and we can't go on forever with that. And so we need to think about an exit strategy that struck a balance between epidemiological concern and also the economic concern. So what are the options and the risks that policymakers are having to balance out at the moment? If you think about the alternative strategies, or what we call exit strategies, is that uh, you either release everyone, the kind of general population, and risk a second wave of infection, or you keep everybody under lockdown until a vaccine is found, which could potentially be about 18 months away. So we want to propose an idea or a policy idea that uh, would be most appropriate uh, in terms of minimizing all the risk involved, because we know that there's a risk related to coronavirus death, but there's also an even bigger risk, in our opinion, uh, the long-term risk associated with poverty, with unemployment, and with the general economic inactivity. You could imagine that if we keep everybody locked down for too long, uh, I'm sure there would be what we call behavioral fatigue kicked in, in a sense that it will be hard to keep everybody cooped up, many people having no income. So social unrest could happen, but that's not the worst thing. I think the worst thing would be um, the mental health of people, deterioration of mental health. Um, There are many, many risks involved. So in your reading of things, 20 to 30-year-olds are the key to the best-case exit strategy. Why this group? Our proposal to release the 20 or 30-year-old is primarily because, statistically speaking, they are the safest among all of us. So if if you can see the data, many, many data that we've been gathering around the world, the fatality risks 
for the young, say about 20 to 30 year old, is very, very small. So according to one, um, the Imperial College report, only three in 10,000 of the 20 to 30 year old have, have that fatality risk. Now compared to the six, somebody who's 60, the fatality risk for them is 75 times that. So they are substantially safer than, than most of us. But also, not only that, the young are the hardest hit financially by the lockdown. So they stand to gain the most from um, being released because they are quite safe and they can start working, they can increase their own prosperity. And, if we, if, and also, if they were to be kept um, cooped up, under lockdown for too long, they are very, very unlikely to abide by that rule anyway. So we might as well try to get them to work. So let's talk figures. How many young people in this category are we talking about? So based on the data from the Office of National Statistics, there are about 4.2 million uh, 20 or 30-year-olds who are not currently living with parents and have been uh, and basically can start working. And the reason why we said uh, these individuals should not be living with their parents is because we want to try to minimize the risk as much as possible for older adults. But isn't there an element of wishful thinking here in the belief that these young people will almost automatically reinvigorate the economy? Personally, and, and I'm sure Andrew agrees with me, that we have to have a bit more faith in the young. And we are living over in, uh, during a very strange time. Uh, obviously, um, most of us have been uh, under lockdown for the past, what we're going on, four weeks now. And so we're not really living in, in, during a normal time. So uh, we, we can, I'm sure, expect the young to take on some of the responsibility of trying to kickstart the economy and basically almost saving our country, really. But our proposal um, might leave an impression that there is little role for older adults, which is not true at all, because the older adults can still act as supervisors, as managers remotely, helping, mentoring the young, so it is still an effort, that, it is a collaborative effort between the old and the young in trying to get our economy going, country, propel our country forward, and still offering hope to the people that, you know, who still can't leave yet, who still have that kind of risk. So I think it's, it's good for everybody, not just for the young. But do we know what sectors these young people were in until recently and what sectors could benefit from their, as it were, reinjection into the economy? Well, as you probably know, there's a lot of displaced workers. So obviously there will be sectors that before this crisis happened never really employed the young. The young could be retrained for those sectors. So they can actually go where they are needed so you can imagine them as essential workers, really, who could also just go to wherever sectors that, 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 that require. They can also just start their own small businesses. They can start reopening restaurants, start delivering food for us, doing grocery shopping for us. So there are many, many things that, um, that the young can do. They could become much more entrepreneurial uh, than before. I just think that we probably need to have a bit more faith 
on the young generation. But you mentioned retraining. Now, surely that's going to involve more experience, possibly older heads to train them in the first sure. place. And more than likely, these older members of the workforce will have to keep an eye on them and monitor them. Well, that's what I meant by saying that there's still roles. There's still a role for the older generations to act as supervisors, as managers remotely through Zoom, through Skype, through all of these things that, that the young who are much more tech savvy than the old can, can learn and adapt to this. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that they can just fit right into any uh, sector, any industry. Uh, but of course, we need to think sensibly about what they could do and at least get yeah, you know, make make a mini economy out of what they could do first before we can start releasing older generations in a staggered way. After we can do uh, lots of intensive antibody testing, so then we can start doing that. So this is not a permanent measure; it's just a temporary first stage measure. You also say the scope for entrepreneurship among this group of young people. But how much? I mean, I don't want to sound overly negative, but the proportion of Mark Zuckerbergs in this group is not going to be high. Sure, but we're not hoping for you know lots of Mark Zuckerbergs. We are hoping just that there will be places that they could start filling in, and they could also start spending this themselves because you know they could go to restaurants because they are substantially safe. Uh, they don't have to worry too much. Right about you know uh, the fatality risk compared to older adults, and I think they are. I mean, his, from what the history tells us, you know, um, the young are entrepreneurial, and they can successfully increase their own prosperity. Probably not to the extent that we would like to have, but I think it will be good. It will be a good start to the economy because 4.2 million. If we think in terms of how much uh, the the wage that they could get. Uh, I think it was about £378 on average uh, among that age group. Uh, that could be translated to about £13 billion for the economy. And that's not little. Do you have any time period for the implementation of this particular strategy? We're recording this interview on Easter Bank Holiday Monday. When do you think it might come into effect? I don't think anybody in the world know when would be the right time to start implementing an exit strategy. Uh, I think epidemiologists and economists have to start working together, start estimating the, 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 all the pro, uh, costs and benefits of each policy and, and, and make a decision as to... And, and I think we're too early. I don't think uh, we haven't really flattened the curve yet. So I think you know, we'll have to start thinking about a bit more seriously when the curve has been flattened a bit more. I don't know when that would be. So I think it, it, it still has to be discussed at a higher up, at a government level. Now, you do predict a cost, quite precisely actually, of 630 premature deaths if this strategy is adopted. Two questions here. One, how do you arrive at that precise figure in the first place? And does that represent an acceptable form of collateral damage? The figure is derived using Ferguson's study from Imperial College. So they have estimated, um, based on the data that they have, that the risk that the young between 10 to 20 or 30 year olds had to face is about 0.03%. So if we imagine that 4.2 million, um, let's say the, the infection rate was about half of that. So let's say half of the 4.2 million were infected. 
so about two point something million. The so times five point zero, so three percent. That will give us about six hundred and thirty fatality rates. Whether or not that is tolerable for um, po- population, we have to judge that number against the numbers of the alternative decisions. Obviously, this six hundred and thirty would be far far smaller than if we were to release everybody, or if we were to keep them locked down for a very very long time, because uh, the risk fatality risk associated with unemployment poverty would be far, far bigger. But to put things into perspective is that each year, there are about 600 deaths associated with traffic accidents for the 20 to 30 year old. So it is a similar number that we get each year. Do you foresee any envy, as it were, or irritability, downright anger among 31-year-olds, or indeed fit 45-year-olds, feeling resentful that one group can get out and they can't. Yes. Now, we're, we're all humans, so I uh, presumably, yes, there would be uh, some jealousy that, you know, why is it that we're being treated differently just because I am, let's say, a few months older? I think this is the role for the government to communicate the logic behind this. Uh, there is a scientific uh, facts that why we are, let's say, if we were to implement this, why we're doing what we're doing. But of course, the 20 to 30 year old, there's an arbitrary element to that, simply because there is, we have a, a fatality risk estimated from the imperial data. But, you know, it's, it's up to the government because that age range could be expanded. It could be, say, 18 to 35, 18 to 40, depending on how much more risk we can tolerate because the risk does go, go up quite quickly as, uh, with age. So I think it's, it's really up to the, you know, to the people who make that ultimate decision. We're only offering this as a suggestion. Of course, it's not going to be a mandatory. I mean, uh, not every 20 or 30 year old have to you know, leave the house if they don't want to. Now, obviously, this suggestion could be implemented along with other you know, measures they could perhaps, let's say, if they want to do antibody testing only on the 20 or 30 year old, because if antibody testing, that, you know, we don't have the kind of scale to do at the population level, they could focus on the 20 or 30 with a lower risk and let those who have you know, kind of strong antibody go out, so just to minimise even further risk. Presumably, the age criteria would have to be policed, though. Um, well, like you know, like I said previously, we are living in a very, very strange time. We are already living in that kind of of world where we are being policed, in a sense, uh, being you know, monitored, not to break the law, uh, not to leave the, not to leave home. So presumably that could you know, be implemented. It will be a bit more difficult, obviously, because it will be harder to tell who's in the age group. So there must, there have to be some kind of registration. There have to be some kind of, you know, they, they might be asked to carry their driving license or passport with them. Not everybody will comply to this, of course, but we need to find a way that minimizes not just the risk of coronavirus death, but also the risk of other things as well. Now, when you came up with this idea, was it inspired by precedent or was it a unique solution to a unique set of circumstances? Now, I have to admit that I, I wasn't the person who came up with this idea. It was Andrew Oswald, my co-author, so I need to give him that credit. 
but when we talked about it, it made complete sense that, you know, as an economist, you know, we always work with numbers, we always work with you know, economic data. We, and we know that there are risks associated with, with, you know, unemployment, with loss of income, which are the risks that the epidemiologists haven't really taken into consideration appropriately enough. So we kind of come from that direction that you know, we need to think about the other risk and if we want to minimize it, how do we find a blend, kind of a blended policy that gives you know, weight on the epidemiological data as well as the economic data? And basically that's how we came, that how we came to be the paper. Now, you admit it's a risk, but presumably it's your belief that in the absence of a vaccine, no action is going to be risk-free. Exactly. So everybody is wishing for a miracle. So we have many people who strongly oppose <laughs> our idea, which is understandable. Um, but of course, they are thinking that um, suddenly we're going to have a vaccine and everything will be fine. Uh, I'm hoping for that as well. Um, I'm hoping really that policy would never have to be implemented in that there will be a vaccine in the next you know, couple of weeks, miracle vaccine and everything will be fine. Obviously, that is very, very much wishful thinking. That's not going to happen. So we need to find or, or at least discuss a way that will minimize the number of deaths, medium run and long run, as much as possible. And we, Andrew and I think that this is the way to do it, at least one of the best ways we can think of to do that. But, um, and to some extent you've already answered this, this group is going to be inexperienced in lots of areas. Won't it need older heads to supervise them? And in real time, not via Skype and Zoom, on the building site, in the supermarket, in the bank, in the pub or the office, to say, look, don't do this and do that. This is just the start of the idea. You can imagine that, like essential workers who are taking measures to, you know, uh, using PPE, using social distancing, we could have essential supervisors. Right? You don't need to have that many of those, which can still make it work. True, not everybody will have to go back to work if, if you're older than 30. And it's true that 20, 30 year old might not all be experienced. But we can find a way because we, have, we are doing it you know, in, in the um, medical industry and, and all these things. So I can imagine it could work. We can allocate people, the older generations, as essential workers who uh, will need to take much more precautions than the others, like, like, like how we have essential workers in the NHS right now to act as an on-site manager if, if need be. But of course, we, there will be many other industries that probably will not require that. So, so some trade-offs will still have to be made, some considerations, considerations will still have to be made to operationalize this. We haven't thought in detail exactly about how to do this. It still needs to be discussed. So if you can find a niche for 20 to 30-year-olds, are there other age bands it might work for? Well, like I said, the fatality risk rise with the age band. For example, it, it rise quite exponentially after the age of 50, 60. So, yes, in principle, you can. You just need to add in the risk, the fatality risk for these other groups as well. And it is up to the government, the decision makers, 
how many deaths can we tolerate? And I can't answer that really question. Now, the numbers involved are impressive, but is the talent pool proportionate to the size of the group? I guess in here, here we just have to be sensible into like which sector can we rely on 20 or 30 year olds. Um, obviously, if it's a, it's a very complex, requires complex um, decision making, we probably would not be able to apply this policy yet. So, of course, the policy is not only about making the whole country operate again. It is also about making, you know, increasing prosperity for these young individuals who have no saving, who have to rent, they don't own a house. In a way, we need to find a balance that these individuals might not be working in a very in the in banking or or all these in other industries, but they can, let's say, be, you know, start you know, opening restaurants, doing some bit to help out the nation and start earning a living as a result. And when will we know that their job is done, as it were, and that we can all come out of hibernation to join them? I think the only time we can be sure that we can all come out is when a vaccine is found. Or what, there is a herd immunity that about 60% of the people, more than 60% of the people have it, which is very, very unlikely. So we're hopeful that the vaccine is found uh, and I think that's when, uh, you know, everybody can, can come out and a full lockdown can end. Do you know how long we've got to find an alternative to the lockdown? Um, again, it really depends on how fast we can bend the curve down. Because if it is, let's say, if, it, if we still cannot bend the curve within the next two months, the economy will not survive i don't think if you know they you know as you know there, there are lots of news today already about how many businesses have to close for good how many people would have lost their job for good so again i mean i can't answer that question i don't think andrew can either and just again on a personal note have you seen or experienced anything like this before well, not in my lifetime but i'm only 42 i'm not sure in andrew's lifetime but i think you know we're living in such a strange time i don't think anyone of us has experienced anyone living anyway has experienced anything like this before i mean the last time that this happened was in 1918 spanish flu but even at that time the social connection the extent of it is not the same as we are now we're not flying all over the world we're not so it is much easier to, con to contain the virus so no i don't think any one of us know. I mean, we, we, we're all experiencing this for the first time. So any measure, however controversial, <laughs> I think it's appropriate to be suggested and to be kind of uh, given full consideration. And another personal question, really, as we near the end, just how worried are you at the moment? I'm more worried about the ramification of a prolonged lockdown on the livelihood of millions of people. I think I'm more worried about that than the... I mean, I am worried about the coronavirus, of course, but I think I'm more worried about people's behavior and the decision-maker that we might be focusing... We might end up focusing too much about attention on one risk and not enough about the other potentially larger more damaging risk. And what about you as a department? Indeed, as a business school altogether, how worried are your colleagues 
as professional advisors and academics right now? I think we're thinking about this all the time. We do have uh, virtual meetings discussing the problem. I mean, Nick Chater was one of the leading co-authors that wrote out this open letter to the government for them to change the strategy from herd immunity to, to the lockdown. So we are talking about this all the time. There's Graham Loom, who takes in consideration the, the quality uh, adjusted life years of people who have coronavirus and, and all these things. So we are concerned about it. Frightened, I'm not sure. It really it could probably varies from person to person. But we, we, we definitely take a keen interest on this issue. Prediction time now, perhaps. Where do you think we'll be in two months' time? In two months' time, I can't see we're going to be in a full lockdown any much longer. I don't think we'll be able to maintain public order. So some measures will need to be taken to try to ease the the lockdown. I'm not sure whether they will take our suggestion. It could be other suggestions. It could be um, tracking and tracing people. My forecast is that I don't think the lockdown will last for another two months. And presumably, although you're in favour of the government lockdown strategy now, someone will have to come up with something, some form of an exit strategy, sooner rather than later. Yes, and I think Andrew and I have contributed to that thinking. But of course, we're not the ultimate decision maker. It will be up to the government to think of what would be the best exit strategy. It might not be one, it might be a combined exit strategy. We just have to wait and see. Nick, thank you. Nick Powdtawi, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast.